0: Dude, we are going to energise the country. Stop Brexit. No more Mr Nice Guy. Another future is possible,
1: but we've got to fight for it. Order!
0: Hello and welcome to the Debated Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Will, and I'm joined by my co-host, Conrad. Hello. And in this episode, we are delighted to be joined by an economist, a journalist, a staff writer for Tribune, and the author of the book, Stolen Grace Blakely. Welcome to the podcast, Grace.
2: Thanks for having me.
0: The first question uh, that I'd like to ask is what's uh, stolen about, for those who haven't read it, and um, w- what is financialization, uh, which you refer to in the
2: Yeah. So financialization basically means the kind of technical definition is the increasing role of financial motives, financial markets, financial actors and institutions in the operation of the international and domestic economies. Now, basically what that means is um, larger kind of banks and other financial institutions. So any institutions that uh, lend or manage money uh, playing a much more important role in other areas of economic activity. So in the book, I look at, for example, the um, the financialization of corporations, the financialization of the household, and the financialization of uh, of the state as well. So I look at how um, financial um, motives and behaviours. So this is all to do with, as I said, kind of lending and investing money and speculating over asset values um, have become more central to economic activity in all of these other areas. So households, for example they're much more likely to say, have a pension pot that they invest in in uh, in stock markets um, to have uh, a house uh, that they will have bought or purchased with a mortgage in the hope that its value will increase, potentially at some point releasing equity from that house. Uh, corporations are much more focused on their share prices and their standing amongst financial institutions and investors than they were, um, you know, uh, several decades ago, for example. Um, and these processes have kind of changed the way that capitalism works, particularly in some of those economies where financialization has been most acute. And I look in particular at the UK and to a lesser extent, the US. Um, And basically what it's done is um, it has elevated these uh, financial behaviours. So again, kind of lending investment speculation over other what would like traditionally have been considered more productive areas of economic activity. So if you're a manufacturing firm, for example, you might be using your profits to, say, uh, buy up the bonds of other corporations or invest in property rather than building a new factory, which is going to hire workers and, uh, you know, and kind of expand economic output and boost productivity. Um, and so I look at the ways in which these behaviours have both contributed to kind of stagnation in the economy and also obviously the way that they were implicated in uh, the lead up to the financial crisis, basically arguing that the financial crisis wasn't just a couple of bad guys and some big banks doing bad stuff. It was very much rooted in the kind of logic of our, our financialized economy.
1: So, yeah, you've been a crit- critic of modern neoliberalism, sort of the way in capitalism, financialization, as you mentioned. Um, what kind of economic policy would you like to see for the future that you would feel would... You know, benefit people the most?
2: Yeah, so I argue basically for a form of kind of democratic socialism. And what this means is so the socialism part means that resources are socialized. So, for example, firms, banks, um, collective assets are owned in common. Um, and the democratic part is to do with the way it's achieved, which is democratically, and also the way in which the system ultimately works. So, this basically means making sure that decisions over resource allocation, um, various other decisions about production, distribution, etc. Are all made democratically. So whether that's you know having uh, worker or cooperative ownership of firms, or having you know uh, ordinary people elected to boards, or having community-owned banking systems, for example, it's uh, it's about both uh, ensuring, as I said, kind of socialised collective ownership of the most important um, institutions and assets in our society, and making sure that democratic methods are used for determining how those things work.
0: What do you think is the difference between political... An economic democracy.
2: That's a really good question. Um, so political economic, political democracy. Sorry, is is at the core of kind of traditional liberalism. So um, you know Mill and Locke and whoever else, uh, all the kind of forefathers of, uh, of what we could traditionally see as English liberalism, really prioritised uh, this idea of political democracy. Of course, at the time, that generally only extended to men with property being able to vote in elections. But you know, this was the idea um and it is premised upon the idea that uh you have different individuals in a society with different needs who um should have the opportunity to voice Vocalize those needs during elections in order to kind of collectively determine the way in which society should develop. And crucially, the idea, as well, uh, kind of within liberal thought, is that um, the needs of the collective have to be um, constrained to ensure that they don't kind of override the needs of minorities as well. So it's kind of a system of, of democracy that is associated with norms, um, you know. And, and rules and, uh, and and systems that are designed to to you know promote a kind of liberal sense of, of human rights crucially most of those early thinkers didn't really extend those notions of kind of protecting individual rights to the realm of the economy so um you know you had political rights and political rights kind of people you know there were significant battles over the extension of political rights well into the um into the 21st century um, and uh those but but as I said, those those uh, those struggles were kind of initially limited to, to those understanding of political rights rather than extending into, say, rights to have a decent standard of living, rights to health care, rights to um you know, certain working conditions. And it was only really when you started to see a much greater struggle happening at the level of the kind of labor movement that those rights really began to emerge and, and become accepted in the mainstream. So the idea. Of of economic democracy is about extending some of those principles that we use to govern our political institutions into the realm of the economy. So into the governance of firms, into the governance of financial institutions, and also into other areas of the state. So it's actually as much about deepening political democracy as it is about extending it. Uh, And so deepening political democracy means, for example, having, um, you know, service users be much more engaged in determining the way that public services work, for example, Um, having kind of state run Banks, corporations, etc., that would be governed by workers and influenced by citizens, and also just making sure that those private institutions that do exist are significantly influenced. The decisions they made are, make are significantly influenced by the needs of workers, stakeholders, and consumers. Um, but as I said, there's also a role here, particularly when you look at the. Um, the extent of just, you know, liberal political democracy in many countries around the world. There is also, I think, a real argument to be made for just the deepening of that. So, getting rid of the House of Lords, for example, getting rid of the City of London Corporation, which technically has its own, um, which is uh, technically a private corporation rather than a normal local authority. These kind of archaic elements of our democratic system also need to be uh, removed as well. So, yeah, I mean, it's really about extending those principles about um, collecting Decision making into the realm of the economy, which is allegedly governed by the kind of abstract principles of free market competition, but which is actually, in fact, in you know, in the way that it, it actively works, is really predominantly run by a small number of large corporations, supported by decisions that are made centrally by a by a state.
1: So um talking about democracy now we obviously had an election last year which labor didn't do particularly well in do you what kind of reasons do you think w- were the reasons behind that defeat
2: Yeah well, <laughs> there are a lot to choose from um, to be honest i've been I was very overtly critical about um, the kind of People's vote stance on Brexit from the very beginning. I was obviously one of those very few people that was on the left, advocating for leaving the European Union on the basis of again these considerations of democracy and the fact that the further you take decision making away from um, from uh, you know the level of the the community, the um, the level of the individual, actually, um, the more alienating it becomes. So you know having. So many different levels of decision making that made it very difficult for democracy to access the centre of the European Union was something that really, um, you know, made me think that it was uh, not a particularly progressive organisation and a view shared by a lot of um, uh, Labour socialists, people like Tony Benn, for example. Um, So, you know, I was one of the few people that was kind of saying on point of principle, we shouldn't be uh, we shouldn't be we, we shouldn't be backing this kind of second referendum stance. But also, I think there were a lot of people who were kind of perfectly happy with the idea of Europe, who also said this is not a stance that is going to help Labour in the election because people are so sick and tired of talking about the issue that they just really are kind of want it to be over and done with. And obviously, there was always the threat, which ultimately happened, of Boris Johnson being able to kind of decimate UKIP and unite the right around his um, around his agenda, which you know made our position look even more fragile. So you know, I I place quite a lot of emphasis on that. I also think that the um, the kind of flip flopping over Brexit really dented support for Corbyn himself who got quite a significant uptick in support in 2017 because he had this image of being a kind of anti-establishment politician, someone who was honest, someone who didn't try and triangulate um, and, you know, who you could therefore kind of vaguely relate to. Obviously, a couple of years later, you'd had yes, the press laying into him, but also his flip-flopping and what seemed like triangulation over Brexit, which was the obviously central issue that everyone was talking about at the time. And I just don't think that that helped his um, his poll ratings at all. It made him look like a kind of typical establishment politician. And I think when the the commitment came out to back a second referendum, that just consolidated a lot of people's belief that he, he wasn't someone to be trusted. And I certainly. Experienced that um, when I was traveling around the country during the election, I spent a lot of time, particularly in the, the Midlands and the North, and that was like a lot of what people were saying, which was, you know, a shame because that's obviously not how I saw him. Um, So I think that was definitely a big mistake. There are also some legitimate criticisms to be made, I think, of the the manifesto. So it was too broad, wide ranging. It wasn't kind of focused enough. It didn't have a coherent message. But really, I think it's just it's that Brexit question and also the impact that the Brexit issue had on Corbyn's personal support.
0: Are you worried at all about the potential economic impact of a no-deal Brexit if it occurs
2: absolutely yeah um i think particularly in this context um the fact that this government does not really seem to have a negotiating strategy um is 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 very worrying because obviously you know that could add to the the economic shock that the uk economy is is currently going through um you know I have my criticisms of the European Union, as you've heard, but I think there is a way of uh, negotiating a way out of some of the worst elements of it whilst, you know, maintaining close trading relationships. Um, And I do not think that's the route that this government Uh, is particularly willing or in fact able to take given the centrality of brexit to its popular support if it reneges on that then you, you could potentially see it losing significant amounts of support in those places where it's picked it up um so yeah i am worried i am very concerned about that i mean the question is whether or not we end up in a recession so deep that it becomes impossible to imagine creating that level of of extra disruption um without you know doing some sort of economic policies that are significantly outside of the the Conservative Party ballpark so we'll see what happens but you know it is a source of concern although I will I do also think that at this point in time the Conservative Party is perhaps much more conscious of the fact that people aren't going to put up with another round of austerity. They're not going to put up with huge amounts of economic disruption. So any moves that they do make on the EU, they'll have to counter with potentially more expansionary fiscal policy um, or, or kind of uh, policies to that effect.
1: You mentioned Conservative Party going outside its comfort zone on the economic issues. And we've seen that obviously with coronavirus the amount of money that they've spent on things like the furlough scheme, support for businesses, that would have been unthinkable a year ago. Um, Do you think this is part of a more general trend in the Conservative Party away from the typical Thatcherite economics? Or do you think this is just related just to this crisis only?
2: I think basically, you know, my view of of Conservative Party policy is that the Tories kind of undertake... um, policy decisions on the basis of what is in the interests of capital. So what's in the interests of big business, of finance, of all those kind of important sectors of the economy. And at the moment, you know, whilst in the immediate aftermath of the financial crisis, you can make a strong case to say that too much government spending would have potentially damaged the interests of those sectors of the economy by, for example, you know, um, boosting employment and wages to such an extent that it harmed profits or that it potentially kind of eroded the power of, of capital relative to labor. But today, you know, it is just absolutely in the in the interests of, uh, of big business, of finance, of all you know, sections of the private sector for the government to be spending much, much more money, and I think that's why we're seeing, uh, a, you know, more spending from this Conservative government and less overt concern about the scale of the deficit. Having said that, there are still a lot of lines that they are unwilling to cross. So you've seen, for example, the government's um, jobs retention scheme has involved them promising a thousand pounds to companies who keep workers on um who've been furloughed when the scheme ends from october until january on the face of it that is not that's just not a good policy right it's not a good policy that it's not good value for money it's not going to protect um employment it's probably not really going to do much to support those firms who uh, who take part in it so you know there's a question there as to why that money wasn't just spent for example employing uh, employing people um on the government employing people themselves to undertake something along the lines of a Green New Deal for example so you know the state say expanding investment in infrastructure or um, expanding investment in the care sector or education or whatever in order to build a an economy that is more resilient that's more productive and that is much more sustainable that's like a central argument of the left today is that you know we need to be um, coming out of this crisis with a plan not just to kind of get back to normal but to shift the very foundations of the british economy and that doesn't seem to be something that the conservatives are willing to touch they're very much just like we want to save things as they are we want to stop things from getting much much worse so we're going to spend quite a lot of uh, of, of money attempting to do that if even if that means you know Doing something like the furlough scheme, which does, on the face of it, support the interests of workers, but which actually, when you look at where the money ends up, it ends up in the pockets of landlords. It ends up in the pockets of, you know, the banks who've lent to these individuals in the context of very high levels of uh, of private debt. So a lot of these things seem like wow, this is a really radical departure for the Conservative Party, but actually you can very clearly see that what they're doing is is very much what they've always been doing, which is trying to kind of save capitalism, in inverted commas, um, in the context of a very, very deep-seated crisis.
0: Now, of course, we've talked about um, Brexit and the coronavirus, which have involved a great deal of, of spending of public money. And um, a report from the Office for Budget Responsibility has come out recently, and it's projecting in the next half century... Uh, The debt to GDP ratio will be 275%. How do you think that will affect public policy spending? regardless of which parties in government.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's very difficult to say, to be honest, because on the one hand, you know, if you buy the line um, of the Conservative Party a decade ago, which was we've run out of money, if we don't cut spending now, then the entire economy is going to collapse, then you can see why there would be a case across the political spectrum for reducing spending. But on the other hand, as I've just said, you know, it's very, very clear that... And this isn't just in the context of the coronavirus. This is actually in the context of the kind of capitalism we have today, which is very stagnant, um, where a lot of people are very highly indebted. That kind of capitalism is very dependent upon the state. So whether you look at what happened in the aftermath of the financial crisis, whether you look at now, whether you look at what's going to be needed to deal with climate change, capitalism today is more dependent upon the state than perhaps ever before. So you've got these two kind of competing things here on the one hand governments don't want to look like they're spending too much money because there's you know potentially concern there are, you know from their investors and also there are lots of considerations particularly for right wing governments about if you spend too much money um supporting working people um then you know that might encourage them to be lazy or as fhirisson next said people get addicted to the furlough scheme this sort of uh, this sort of stuff that makes it more difficult to insist that Uh, People go out and take the least well-paying job available to them, which is obviously very important for um, continuing for, you know, the the nature of the British economy, which is kind of relies quite substantially on on low paid, uh, low skilled labour. So, you know, there's there's that to consider. But there is also the fact that, you know, if the government just stopped spending now, the reason that those figures have gone up so high is because the OBR is projecting such a substantial drop in GDP. So th- it, it, from I think it's in that report, it says from March to no from February to April, GDP dropped by 25 percent. That's staggering. That is a huge, huge drop. And they're predicting that by the end of the year, that figure will round up to around 12 percent, which is, again, a really, really big drop in GDP. And that isn't something that's likely to just bounce back, as you know we've been told by the government, which is expecting kind of V-shaped recovery. That's just very, very unlikely because unemployment is going to soar again in that um, in that document. There are projections of unemployment Reaching twelve percent again—that's not something we've seen, you know, in my lifetime, in your your guys' lifetimes, not since the nineteen eighties. So we're really in quite unprecedented economic times at the moment, and that—that's obviously the reason that the budget uh, deficit is increasing so much, and why the debt to GDP ratio will increase so much over the course of the next several years. But I don't think that means we can say that public spending is likely to decrease in order to pay back the debt. In fact, what we'll likely see is a similar situation to what's happened in Japan, for example. They had a huge buildup of debt, private debt, mainly household, household and corporate debt. That bubble burst. The state had to take on a lot of debt to pick up the slack. And today their economy is still very heavily indebted in lots and lots of different ways. And I imagine that is where our economy is likely to be going. You know, we've just accumulated so much debt, whether that's household debt, corporate debt or public debt, that it doesn't really even seem conceivable that that debt can ever be paid off. Now, that creates some really pressing questions for um, you know, the right, in fact, for anyone who supports any form of capitalism whatsoever, because it's not, it just makes the system much more fragile to have all these kind of overlaying and interwoven claims being made on different actors. It just means that when a recession hits, you the impact of it is potentially exacerbated. Um, so that is a really, really profound question, I think, as to what, we, where we go next in the context of this highly indebted form of capitalism that we, we live under today. Now, there are some people who are saying we need a debt write-off, for example. So a household debt, a big chunk should be written off. Sovereign debt, especially for poorer countries that can't afford to pay it, should be written off. That's personally something that I think is a, a very interesting proposal, um, but obviously it would require a huge amount of political will to push it through.
1: Now, talking about things going into the future, Labour have got a new leader, Keir Starmer, who will most likely be taking them into the next election. At the moment, he's polling about sort of four or five points behind the Conservatives. Would you think that's sort of compared to the last election is that progress, or is that not as well as you might have expected or hoped? And how do you think he's going to do at the next election?
2: I think nearly any kind of. Um you know it would it would have been hard to do worse in terms of <laughs> in terms of votes than uh, than the last election so naturally there's been something of an improvement but i don't think the improvement's been on the scale that a lot of people were expecting um i don't know if you remember there was all that um a lot of people a lot of kind of political commentators who were suggesting that uh a couple of years ago that if the labor party had had any other leader they would be 20 points ahead in the polls and i think that um can only really be, uh, be be deeper today given the kind of massive incompetence of the government that we have uh, at the moment. So I think a lot of people will be surprised that Keir Starmer isn't racing ahead in the polls. Now, there are a couple of reasons for this, I think. Per- so yes, the Labour Party, um, so sorry, Keir Starmer's approval ratings personally are quite high, but that isn't being reflected in voting behaviour. Now, I think part of that is just a natural initial bump that any new leader gets. Part of it is because if you look at if you break down the polling on Starmer's leadership um, approval, a lot of people just don't know who he is. So that's obviously going to be something that's going to dent Labour's uh, Labour's, um, support because, you know, a lot of the time, especially in a kind of democracy such as ours, when you're voting for a party, you're voting in large part for the leader, which is a big part of why we did badly in 2019. Um, So, you know, Keir Starmer needs to be much more out there than he is right now, much more critical of the government, much more active in saying, this is what the Labour Party would be doing, uh, because he's not really doing much of that at the moment. He's kind of, he's been quite quiet. Um, And... uh, there's also, I mean, yeah, the, the, there's also uh, those questions around how the government handles the pandemic as it worsens and what Labour's alternative would look like. Because at the moment, it does seem like there's a strategy which is don't criticise the government too much because people will view it as Labour politicising the pandemic. But I think as things start to get worse, if you don't have an opposition there saying, this is not the only course of action, we could be doing X and Y and Z, you know, we could be creating a much more sustainable recovery, which was associated with a Green New Deal, where you had uh, much um, a state, the state playing a much bigger role in ensuring people had access to employment, um, where you had a a much stronger, and more resilient healthcare system, all these sorts of things. Then people are going to look around and think, well, you know, this is the only way that things could be. They're not going to be able to envision an alternative. And if they can't envision an alternative, then generally when people are scared, as they are now and will probably still be in four years, they're just going to vote for more of the same. So I am worried that if Starmer doesn't get out there and start presenting some proper alternatives to the current government's approach to this then it's not, then, you know, Labour is not going to do well at the next election. And a big part of that, you know, a big part of Labour's success, especially when the Conservative coalition is so united, and that is predominantly, you know, kind of older homeowners and, um, you know, people who are voting Conservative out of basically a a commitment to kind of cultural conservatism. Um, That block being so united, having, you know, taken away a lot of support from places like UKIP, for example, means that Labour has to rely on first uniting its own base but second encouraging non-voters to come into the electorate because that's actually been a big reason a big factor behind the falling support for labour really since 1997, because a lot of working class voters in particular have been leaving the electorate ever since then. At every election, you see this happen more and more and more. Just a huge number of people don't vote. And a lot of those non-voters would otherwise be Labour voters. So unless Starmer can kind of get a message that is, um, you know, exciting enough to encourage people to actually get out, of, get out to the polls, then, yeah, I'm concerned about, about Labour's chances at the next election, definitely.
0: Uh, Now, speaking of Keir Starmer, he recently sacked the Shadow Education Secretary, the former Shadow Education Secretary, uh, Rebecca Long-Bailey. Do you think that that was the right thing to do?
2: Um, I don't, no. I mean, to be honest, so Rebecca Long-Bailey, obviously, for context, retweeted an article in which Maxine Peake used what could be described as kind of anti-Semitic tropes. Now, personally, I don't think the language that she used was... You know, I wouldn't use that language. Right. So she obviously said that the uh, the American police learned the tactics they used to kill George Floyd from the Israeli police. Now, personally, I don't see where that's relevant. I don't see why you would use that analogy. Um, I don't see why you would imagine that the American police would need external support for using tactics that they've used for a very very long time but i don't think it's legitimate to say that because rebecca long bailey retweeted an article in which maxine peak used ill-advised language you can therefore say rebecca long bailey is anti-semitic given that there is little or no evidence that that is the case on the basis of the rest of her political career so I kind of think this was a a, a massive, it, it, it seems like a very overtly sectarian move. And I mean, especially when, for example, you could argue that there are people in Keir Starmer's team who've made more anti-Semitic interventions. For example, Rachel Reeves, who uh, who expressed her support for, uh, for Nancy Astor, who was famously kind of supportive of the Nazis. So there is seems to be this double standard and it, it does look as though that is an overtly sectarian move. There was another way of dealing with this, which was to say, why, you know, why did you retweet this article and then have uh, Rebecca explain herself and maybe apologize and say, you know, what Keir Starmer has said, which is, I'm sorry that I called Black Lives Matter a moment, not a movement. I'm going to undertake unconscious bias training. It kind of sets double standards, not only in the treatment of antisemitism within his own party, but actually about his treatment of racism in its entirety because arguably what he said about black lives matter was more offensive right was more uh, evidence of kind of more um, deep-rooted racial intolerances so I think that this does look like it was a sectarian move um, and obviously it was kind of applauded across the press Um, but I don't think it was the right one because it does just make it look like Starmer kind of is looking for Reasons to exclude left-wing voices from his cabinet, and is quite happy to kind of overlook similar transgressions when they're on when they're made by by those on the right.
1: Um, going back to what you said earlier about um, the Conservatives uniting their sort of coalition, including cultural conservative voters. Now, many of these people may have traditionally voted Labour, and sort of, sort of these sort of working class people who have fit more into sort of the faith, flag and family, I guess, kind of image, you know, the traditional conservative social policies, maybe, but sort of more left wing economics. Do you think there's any prospect of Labour winning these people back? Or do you think they have to sort of build a new coalition and sort of accept that those people are going to vote Conservative from now on?
2: I think there is a certain element of having to accept that there are a lot of working class voters who prioritise their what would you know be called cultural concerns over economic ones, and that those aren't people who are likely to be won back to uh, to Labour. But I don't think that is a majority of the British working class. I think there are a lot of other working class voters who would like to vote Labour on the grounds of its economic policy, who supported Brexit not because they're kind of massive reactionary racists, but because they saw good reason for leaving the European Union. And once that vote was done, you know they thought that that was that needed that should be honoured. Um, and I also think that, as I said, labour really needs to focus on bringing people into the electorate who have left it over the course of the last several decades um as well as obviously shoring up its core base of support, which is you know young people, young, meaning basically anyone under kind of forty five um, and 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 yeah, kind of consolidating that coalition whilst trying to expand it um into the regions again into other sections of the working class and particularly into people who who haven't been voting so th- that's obviously a really big challenge because it's quite a diverse group of people when you look at them in terms of their views on again you know culture um kind of social issues as opposed to economic issues but the Labour Party always does best when it is able to make the biggest issue in the election about the economy um, because you know I think When labor is good on the economy, when they have a strong message on the economy, not, for example, austerity, but a bit less bad, but actually we need to undertake fundamental economic transformation, then it will do better because that's a compelling message, especially for people who are um, struggling and who are uh, seeing their living standards fall, which is likely to be, you know, the vast majority of people over the course of the next several years. So Yeah, I mean, which which is why it is a a shame to see Starmer lose some of that radicalism on the economy, which was so widely supported by people really kind of, you know, all across the country um, in 2017. Particularly things like the Green New Deal, which has massive society-wide support and which, you know, would be really just ask most economists and they would say actually something like that a kind of state-led program of investment to decarbonize is uh just you know the best way to respond to a to a crisis like this so there is a real opportunity here i think for labor to kind of unite people behind that message of economic transformation and of political transformation as well so saying you know putting democracy at the heart of its message saying that you know there have been a a small number of people who've monopolized power and wealth in our society for too long and that we need to push back against that um so i think there's an opportunity there but it's a question of whether or not we're actually able to take it because uniting people on that message requires very very strong messaging you know that whole for the many not the few that was quite strong it really cut through um but obviously in 2019 that that message wasn't really there and instead the election was dominated by brexit and the conservatives completely swept the uh the field so yeah you know i still really hold to that belief that if especially in the context of a kind of a deep recession that we're going into now if labor can make very strong arguments about how we need to change the economy how we need to make it fairer more sustainable more efficient more productive then that's going to be how they are going to win votes
0: Um, Robert Reich argues in his book Saving Capitalism that countries like Britain uh, should focus more on the production of, quote-unquote, quality items rather than um, quantity in in terms of competition with nations like um, China. Uh, How how accurate uh, do you think that is as as, as an idea? How how much do you support it?
2: I think... It is becoming a slightly outdated argument given the massive backlash that we're seeing against globalization around the world today. Um, you know, we've we, we really kind of entered a period of globalization, in which um, trade flows, capital flows, investment flows all seem to have slowed quite substantially. So um, that seems to imply, and in fact, this is borne out by a lot of the evidence that we have, that there'll be a move away from the kind of offshoring of the pe- the kind of peak period of globalization and a move towards um onshoring so you know countries producing much more of what they use domestically um now i think that that is going to be associated with um an, uh sorry that that is going to be in the uk associated with um yeah more manufacturing being undertaken domestically, more agriculture potentially being undertaken domestically. And that is something that should be encouraged. That isn't to say, of course, that it's sustainable to build a completely autarkic economy where everything that you consume domestically is produced domestically. Obviously, you know, the reasons behind this are to do with um, the slowdown in globalization, but also environmental issues. So, you know, there are environmental considerations that need to be taken into account about having lots of imports and exports being shipped from all over the world but on occasion and you know quite frequently there are going to be things that it isn't sustainable to produce domestically rather than kind of import from the rest of the world and on that front you know obviously there is a big benefit in being able to uh, import goods and services from China which has a um, you know which has a great deal of expertise in the production of these things and is actually you know, I don't even buy the argument that China is, is still kind of low quality, high volume production. In fact, it's increasingly becoming a very knowledge intensive economy. And that trend is only going to uh, going to increase. Um, so, you know, I don't see a, a, a problem with that. I don't think that it's it's necessarily bad for the UK that China is becoming a more knowledge intensive, more productive economy that is increasingly operating at, at higher levels of the, the value chain. And I also see um, a, an opportunity for actually reshoring some of those, uh, you know, what you might call kind of less productive sectors um, that are often associated with kind of poverty wages when they're undertaken in other parts of the world uh, in order to make our economy more sustainable. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I don't think I agree with with Robert right there. And I think it's the book Saving Capitalism is interesting because there's obviously a lot of kind of progressive liberal economists who are arguing at the moment that um, there is something wrong with capitalism and that if governments kind of tweak things a little bit, then they'll be able to fix it. I'm much more of the view that actually the system is, is broken irreparably and we need to figure out a new way of organizing our economy
0: up to the end of the podcast it's been great speaking to you grace and i'd like to ask you one final question um now something that i didn't realize about you um until i was doing research for the podcast is that you're a musician uh, so my question to you is um if you could choose any politician or economist from throughout history uh who would you pick to be in a band with
2: that is such a good question oh my goodness okay this is gonna be a real tough one i mean i don't know how good he wasn't singing but i just really love tony ben i feel like i would really like to have tony ben in my band um oh but then you know there are some great politicians from the u.s who are also great singers like <laughs> the one that obviously comes to mind is not something who I wanted in my band, but I remember Obama was really good at singing. Do you remember what he sang "Amazing Grace"? um Oh, I don't know. I mean, maybe someone like Angela Davis, or um, yeah, maybe maybe a kind of a politician from Sub-Saharan Africa, a cool socialist. Um, like Thomas Sankara. Oh, I don't know. It's too, it's, there's too many possible options. But I think if I had to form a band with anyone, it probably would be Tony Ben because I feel like we would really have a lot of chemistry. <laughs>
0: so, um, you've got some great suggestions there. And I think that, uh, as you said about um, Tony Ben, I think a lot of our uh, listeners uh, would agree with you. Uh, thank you uh, once again for coming on the podcast.
2: Thanks very much for having me.
0: Thank you for listening to the podcast. Don't forget that you can subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean or YouTube, you can follow us at Debated Podcast on Twitter. Like us, Debated Podcast on Facebook. And if you want to email us either about appearing or making a comment or reaction to the episode you've heard or any other episodes, then email us thedebatedpodcast at gmail Thank you for listening. I hope you listen to the next one.